listening to the Keef to the City podcast. All right, today we look back at uh, some Yankee seasons of the past, and joining me today is former Yankee Homer Bush, who is now the director of youth programs for the Texas Rangers and also author of the new book, Hitting Low in the Zone, A New Baseball Paradigm. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter, at Bush Homer. Homer, how's it going today? Outstanding, Neil. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. You know, when I uh, when I think about those late 90s teams and the teams that I grew up watching and, uh, you know, grew up uh, rooting for with the Yankees and really turned me into a baseball fan in the 90s uh, from the Manly era right into the Jeter era, uh, you know, you were a part of those teams. Uh, you came over to the Yankees in 97 as part of the Decky-Rabu trade and, uh, you know, you, you're on the team a little bit that year and then really in 98 things took off. But, you know, going back and you know, reading about you and doing research, uh, you had quite the football career in high school. So it's almost a shock with, uh, you know, how well you did at football that you didn't, you know, try to Deion Sanders or something your way into both leagues. <laughs> no, no, no. I had a little football career in high school. But, man, it was too physical for me. <laughs> <laughs> when it came time to decide, you know, if you're going to you know, go, I know the Padres drafted you pretty high or with all the accolades, I know you had some scholarships for football. Was it a hard decision to choose baseball over football? Extremely difficult. Uh, my goal going into my uh, senior year was to just try to get a scholarship the best way possible, get an education, um, get a job, make $50,000 a year, marry another young lady. Married young lady making fifty thousand dollars a year, and man, we'll live life happily ever after. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but when I got the opportunity, uh, when I got drafted, uh, it was tough because baseball was my first love. Football was something that was going was kind of mean to an end. Um, our baseball program wasn't very good, so I didn't know if I was going to get uh, any publicity. Uh, but we had you know, like number one, number two team in the country in football, so. Um, once I decided, man, I'm going to, I'm going to take the football route. Um, my mind was focused on that. And then when I got drafted, it was kind of like, Whoa, I don't know what I'm getting into with the whole minor league thing. And I, you know, my, uh, my father passed when I was like five, but my mother, my mother, she just said, baby, just go play baseball. You know, you know, you can always go to college, just go play baseball. And if it works out great, if not go back to college. Well, in '97, you're you're with the Padres. You're in AAA, hitting 277, and then uh, right near the first end of the first the end of the first month of the season in April, you get traded to the Yankees as part of the Decky Rabutre, where they get the negotiating rights to him. A few other players involved, some cash involved as well. Uh, you know, you're, you're a Padre for the last six years. They drafted you in '91. It's '97. You're still playing in their minor league system. Was this, you know, a shocker, a stunner, or was this something that you welcomed because it gave you a chance with a different organization? Absolutely, yeah. I welcomed it because it gave me an opportunity to investigation. Uh, the only problem with that organization was New York Yankees, and they weren't big on young players. You know, they, they really liked the, the veteran players because, you know, it was win, win right now, win tomorrow, win the next day. So uh, <laughs> it was a, a little bit different situation when, uh, you know, most of you have a little time to grow as a young player. For the Yankees, you've got to. Yeah, I agree. And I feel like what you brought up there about them not really being on young players, they're still like that today. And I guess 
because of what they built in the 90s and, you know, winning every year. And like you said, win now, win today, win tomorrow. Uh, there's no time to rebuild. They, they can't even rebuild on the fly and sort of build up from the farm system. They'd have trouble doing that. Uh, you know, but you look at other teams around the league and they're willing to give kids a shot. You know, 20, 21, 22-year-olds, the Yankees prospects usually come up in their mid-20s when they would have already been on the majors for a couple of years on other teams. And I always joke because – they always talk about how the Yankees had Mike Trout on their draft board and had they not lost the pick that they got for signing Teixeira that maybe it would have fallen to them. And I always kid that if Mike Trout was with the Yankees, he'd probably still be in the minors. <laughs> hey, that's a possibility. <laughs> yeah. But, but uh, no, I definitely get the point. Yeah, and you, and you come over in 97, you know, you get to play a few games with them. They have the heartbreaking loss uh, in the playoffs to the Indians. But in 98... You're on the team right away after Louis Soho uh, gets injured, and uh, you know you you start to you know you're on this team that loses the first three games, four of the first five, and then really after that, you, you guys never lost again. I mean, I, I go back and think, you know, I was only 11 years older in that season, turning 12 at near the end, and you guys won 31 of your first 40. You were 89 and 29 at one point. You had 100 wins with still a month left in the season, and for now, you know the way sports is. Uh, sort of dissected with sports radio and social media. Really, back then, there was nothing to complain about when it came to the Yankees. No, no, not about well, other than those first few, first few games. Uh, but, you know, I was speaking with uh, someone just today about that season was, was crazy because we, I mean, we knew we were playing well, but we never got comfortable. You know, I think Boston played pretty good for, you know, a long stretch as well. So, I mean, we were always being chased. And, you know, it was one of those deals where you couldn't let up. And the other um, uh, component to that was that the uh, the starting guys couldn't slack because you had guys on the bench that was hungry for at-bats. I mean, you had Chili Davis, Tim Raines, Daryl Strawberry fighting for at-bats. Uh, Chad Curtis was in that mix, and Shane Spencer came up, and Ricky Day, and that's just in the outfield. You know, I was playing well, even though – Nobby was Knobloch was making six million fish. He had nothing to worry about. But if he had ever, um, you know, went in the pump, they'd have definitely throw me out there because I was playing well. The few times they threw me out there, so it was so much inner competition um, that wasn't really noticeable. But man, we were hungry. We wanted to get out on that field. I, I heard you say six million fish for Knobloch. I never heard. Uh, I never heard fish used like that. I feel like I got to steal that and start using it. <laughs> Yeah, he was making a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> well, that season, you know, in, in limited time, I mean, you played well. You're, you, people still remember you just from that year. And you look at the numbers there, you know, you hit 348, 389 on base. And, and, uh, or, or rather, for your Yankees career, 348, 389 on base in 64 career games with the Yankees. But really, as a role player and as a bench guy on that team, and, and like you said, it was hard to sort of break in because – they don't you really use young players they're the veterans you were sort of uh you know blocked by every position you played at second short and third by veterans but um to have an impact on that team were you ever worried you know throughout the year that at some point you'd go back down because of because of whether it was Soho coming back or other guys were you ever worried that uh you know it could end at any day every day the only problem one thing I had on my side was that I was out of options and uh in spring training there were no spots available and Cashman, you know, informed me they were trying to trade me before the end of spring training. So uh, when Soho got hurt, it was like, man, we'll just keep you. And when Soho comes back, we'll, uh, you know, we'll do a deal for you. Well, 
uh, I started playing well, and when he came back, they made other moves. So, um, you know, at that point, I had still I was still concerned I was going to get sent down, sent down, but I had more value because I had produced a little bit at the major level. Yeah, and you look at that season, I mean, to hit 380, 421 on base in, in 45 games, 78 plate appearances, I mean, and that's not a short amount of time. That's over the whole course of the season. So for you to stay fresh, for you to stay, you know, able to produce in such a limited role, I mean, you look at guys now today and they're getting way more, you know, opportunities and way more at-bats as either a platoon player or a bench guy, and they can't seem to figure it out when players go from the starting role later in their career to a bench role. What, you know, made it for you, you know, what made it so, well, I guess not easy, but it looked easy from the outside for you to stay, uh, you know, stay focused and stay game ready despite not playing that much? Oh, yeah, it was easy, baby. Let me tell you how I did it. No, I give all the credit to... um the veterans that were on the bench with me, uh, we would talk hitting every day. You know, I had an opportunity to work a lot. You know, when I wasn't playing, I was working uh, before, during, and after games. Uh, and also, Joe Torrey made it so easy for me. He was like, Bushy, I want you to go out there. Don't take any pitches. Be aggressive. When you get on the base pass, like, man, all you can do is win. Like, anything, any, any contribution you can give us, is a positive. Don't feel like you have to go out and set the world on fire. So with that mentality and my preparation, I mean, it really was, it's like, it was like I had, all I had to do was just go be fast and have fun. Yeah, and I feel like you almost had, you could use a sense of playing with house money because, like you said, they, you thought you were getting traded, Soho gets hurt, you're there. So, really, you had nothing to lose by going out there and playing with that aggressive approach that Tori had mentioned because, you know, what was the, the worst thing that would happen is, you know, you'd get sent back down and I guess, you know, you expected to be there in the first place. That's right. That's right. I was definitely playing with house money. And, uh, yeah, it was, uh, you know, I will admit it was, uh, it was pressure because, you know, you're play, playing in front of 30, 40, 50,000, played on ESPN a couple nights, uh, when I got spot start. So it was pressure from that standpoint. But the one thing I knew that I could do each and every time I got on the field was, was, uh, make the routine play on defense and be fast on the base pass. And I know you played the majority of your career at second base uh, and, you know, more shortstop fit in, but you had a couple games there at third in 98 and, you know, going back and reading uh, an article from the Times or the Daily News back then where um, it was your second straight start, uh, uh, you know, two two starts in as many days and you were starting at third and you hadn't really played there. So, you know, what's that like? You know, you're getting the opportunity to play, but you're playing a position, you're sort of at a position at or were you, you know, did you always take balls and grounders at all three? I always took grounders at all three, so I was I was ready. And you know, there again, I used to be like, man, just catch the ball that's hit to you. You know, don't try to do too much. Um, you know, keep it simple. You just need to get through nine innings, <laughs> <laughs> and then I get another nine innings. It was like, what's going on here? But Joe was Joe was pretty good at like trying to get me on the field any way possible. Uh, you know, he had some. Some um, some veteran players that were having some big years. Scott Brochers in particular was you know was having a big year, and uh, you know every now and then he'd like to rest those guys, and that was kind of my saving grace that we had a whole we had a bunch of veteran players that needed to rest. So uh, and a couple of them had bad knees, like Strawberry Davis ended up getting injured. So whenever there was an opportunity to get on the field, whether it be pinch running, spot start. Uh, coming in, releasing the guy late in the game. Uh, I was all over it. 
and there's always the old, old adage that you know when a guy's put in a spot he's not familiar with, or when he's playing that he, you know not regular playing time, the ball always seems to find him. And you know when you get in the field and you're playing, you know once every couple of weeks at some time, you know two starts, you know in as many days, and you don't play for a week or so. Are you hoping the ball finds you? Are you hoping uh, you, you wait until like the fourth or fifth inning until you finally get settled in? Well, the story I would tell my son is, oh man, I want that ball each and every time, but. Uh, the truth is, man, I wanted no parts of that baseball. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it depends on how good you're feeling doing that stretch, but um, more than likely, man, you want no parts of that. Um, I can tell you that now. <laughs> <laughs> well, that season, you know, you guys were so good, 114 and 40 in the regular season, arguably the best team of all time, and, and it wasn't like you got hot and then just sort of you know went away and hid and, and played 500 baseball down the stretch or something. You just kept on winning and kept on winning all the way to the end of the season with a seven-game winning streak to close it out. Uh, and then the playoffs come around, and, you know, you, you, you go through the playoffs pretty pretty easily, sweep to Texas, sweep Texas in the first round, uh, beat the Indians in six, and I know things sort of got dicey in that series, and there was a, a point where uh, Yankees fans were a little worried that, you know, it might just be a great regular season team that could fade in the playoffs after you fall to, uh, you know, you you fall down two games to one to the Indians. Um and then things sort of got saved when El Duque took the mound in Game Four. But did you start to feel the pressure after Game Three, and that you know this thing could get out of get get could get away from you, and it it might just be a disaster of an ending? Um, I, you know I can't remember, but what I do remember is every pitch was like the last pitch of the ninth inning. I mean, I'm talking like no room for error. Um, you know, considering Cleveland had just knocked us out the previous year. It was like we wanted to redeem ourselves. Uh, and there was some, I think there was some stuff going on with Wells uh, and the fan base in Cleveland. And, you know, so it was it was a lot of tension there. Uh, Tons of, uh, of uh, mixed emotions. But the one thing I remember was that no matter what we had done during the regular season, it would have been a disappointment if we didn't win the World Series, considering we had had so much success. So did you guys feel pressure during the year? I know, you know, going into the year, no one expects to be a 114-win team or 125, including the postseason. But at what point in that year did you did you think, you know, it'll be a failure if we don't win because we're that good? Um, I think once we clinch and, like, and we clinch, like, uh, early September or even late August or something like that. I mean, we, when you put that's on advance, it's kind of like you expect it to do big things. Well, in the World Series, you play the Padres, you sweep them, your old team, the team that had sent you to New York the year before, the team that had drafted you, giving your first chance at professional baseball. Uh, you know, what's your feeling? Because you had a direct connection to them. I mean, that's the team that drafted you. That's the team that had you in the minors, sent you to the Yankees. So uh, it must have felt pretty good to, to beat them in four games. Uh, yeah, 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 but I tell you what, it was all, and, and you know, I'm not just trying to be politically correct. It was all good feelings because um, the project had stuck with me. I was raw. Uh, you know, I hadn't played a whole lot of baseball uh, because I grew up in the Midwest. And, you know, we didn't have travel, you know, all the travel ball that's taking place today. So they had uh, stuck with me through uh, thick and thin. And, uh, you know, and so when I got on the right track, you know, it was kind of like a bonus for them. And, and they told me that they were going to go with Kirill Barris. And so it's like, man, we need to get you a place where you can, possibly get an opportunity to play, um, you know, 
time's not on your side. Clock is ticking. So when the trade worked out with the Yankees, great. But to play them in the World Series, it seemed like we both had won on that deal. The Padres um, got some good talent in return, and they were scared to make the World Series. And at least they're part of the Yankee team. I mean, I'm pretty sure they were surprised that, you know, that Yankees going to get that type of return on their investment so soon. Well, after the World Series, I mean, it's the team's second World Series in three years. Uh, you know, no one knew what was going to come the next two years or two more. But how long after do you do you continue celebrating? I know the parade's a couple days later uh, in downtown Manhattan. But how long do you celebrate from the day you win a World Series, you know, through the offseason? How long does the good times, you know, roll for? You know, I didn't have very long, a few weeks, because I had to go play winter ball. I had committed to play winter ball before the season started. So. <laughs> That was one bad decision I had made, huh? <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you remember, you know, the parade, the King of Heroes? I know that, you know, everyone always remembers the images and stuff, but I don't know if it's a blur because of, you know, how hectic it can be right after you win and every, you know, the appearances you have to make, the celebrating. Do you have, you know, memories of that day? I do. I really do. As a matter of fact, I was very calm. You know, I was just taking it in, and I had gotten so wrapped up into the parade and just how exciting it was. I remember blowing kisses to, to the fans <laughs> before it was all over with. I mean, it was just, it was too much to take in because there were people, you know, 40 stories high, you know, 20 blocks to you, you know, straight ahead of you, uh, 20 blocks down the, the, the streets to the right and left of you. It was just, it was truly amazing. Well, the following uh, season, you know, spring training begins. You guys are defending world champions, the best team maybe ever. And all of a sudden you get traded to Toronto with Graham Lloyd and David Wells for Roger Clemens. And I know how distraught David Wells was over that because, uh, you know, he had loved being a Yankee so much, loved pitching for the Yankees. It was his lifelong dream. Graham Lloyd had been such a key person in the pen, you know, as a setup guy and uh, had gotten so many big outs for them. And then there's you who, you know, had finally stuck around with a major league team an entire season, wasn't really given, you know, a great opportunity to play, but at least, you know, a, a pretty solid role or as a role player for a world championship team. And then you go to, Tor you find out you're going to Toronto um, and, you know, maybe not at that time, you didn't realize how much playing time you'd get there, but was it, you know, the same feelings you had when you went to San from San Diego to New York or were you devastated? Uh, you know, it was bittersweet, but, uh, it, um, I was kind of excited from the standpoint of I was going to get an opportunity to play. And if I was ever going to do anything in the game of baseball, I needed to get some consistent at bats. And so, um, when I, when, uh, I spoke with the Blue Jays right after the trade, it was, um, it was almost guaranteed that, Hey, you're going to play. We're not giving you the second base job. You got to come in and earn it, but knowing, you know, what you're capable of doing, come and do that. And, you know, you'll get your 500 at-bats. And so uh, I, I was excited from the standpoint I was getting ready to play. But I was a little disappointed, especially after, you know, two years after the trade, they go on to win two more championships. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, so as you can imagine, I was a little disappointed from that standpoint. You can tell that they were going to get back to the big dance uh, soon, not knowing it's going to be the next two years. Where were you when you found out you were getting traded? Were you already down in Tampa? I was in Tampa. Uh, I uh, I'd, um, moved to Tampa to uh, work out early uh, with the um, some of the coaches. And um, I'm driving down the street, and I get a phone call from my wife saying, "Hey, man, you just enjoyed it." <laughs> and then, yeah. and then, you know. Uh, 
at that point, I mean, when you go back to the the San Diego trade, I mean, you, as you said, they said sort of said they were going with a different guy and they're going to try to find you an opportunity to play. Were you blindsided by the move the Yankees were trading you, or did you have a, a sense that you know they might try to move you in the off season? Uh, yeah, uh, Cash was pretty cool about it. You know, he told me he said, "Hey, we're gonna, we're gonna, you know, we need to get you somewhere to play." He said, um, "You know, I'm not guaranteeing you that you know uh, a deal is going to come along, but just want you to know that you know." It could be a possibility, you know, you're moving. So I was like, cool. <laughs> well, then 99, yeah. your first season with Toronto, the most, you know, games played for you in a single season, your career, 128. They got you those 500 at-bats, like they said, 485, 523 plate appearances. And you did well, three, hit 320, stole 32 bases, uh, drove in 55, hit five home runs, 26 doubles. And, you know, it sort of sucks as a fan of yours and, you know, to watch you with the Yankees and then with the Blue Jays and to see this glimpse of, you know, what your career really should have been and what could have been without the hip injuries. Um, you know, that was that was Homer Bush right there, that the numbers you put up in that first season in Toronto. Yeah, I tell you what, I, I, I learned to have a great deal of respect for the guys that play every day because – you know, 160 games is hard on the body. You have to be lucky to stay healthy. And for me, uh, you know, my style of play didn't help my longevity by no means. Um, you know, trying to be Pete Rose Jr., sliding here first, <laughs> diving all the time. You know, so, uh, yeah, I just could not stay on the field. You know, it was the hip. It started with the hamstring. You know, the hamstring got the hip going. And, I mean, for the last... Oh, a year and a half from late 2001 through all 2002, my right hamstring was on fire every day. Like it never healed. And so I started losing kind of the passion for the game because I just couldn't, couldn't do it at a hundred percent. Well, while you're in Toronto, like you had mentioned before, you know, the Yankees, they, they win again in 99 and 2000 and then uh, 2001, they of course lose in, in seven games. But as you're watching now as an opponent of them and from afar, obviously you still have friends on the team, but are you rooting for them to, to keep on winning or, or are you sort of, you know, holding it back because you, you were there and you could have still been there? You know, I like the fact that they're relevant. You know, they've always had a good offense. Uh, what they needed, you know, in, in this um, – they needed a break. Uh, you know, I know it's going to be tough to try to produce that same success with Boston and New York, um, you know, continue to get better. And they're, um, you know, sticking with some of the, you know, most of the same pieces. So, you know, it's going to be interesting to see. I, I, I'm glad they're, uh, they're relevant for sure. And, you know, I'd like to see them win the championship again someday. And was it hard to watch the, was it hard to watch the Yankees win while you were in Toronto? Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's just as about as honest as I could be on that one. <laughs> right, right. Well it's, you leave why, Toronto why not me? <laughs> well you left Toronto, ended up with the Marlins, then you got re back, re signed with the with the Padres, then you end up back with the Yankees. Um, you know, second tenure, second turnaround with the Yankees, uh it didn't last very long because you know, like you alluded to, the injuries finally caught up with you and forced you to retire. But it's interesting to see, you know, I read how you sort of 
um, after the old four season, the Yankees brought you back for oh five and sort of because of, you know, your own doing. And, uh, I had CJ Nikowski, the reliever on the podcast the other day, and he talked about how, um, when he had left the Braves, he was looking for teams that might've needed a lefty. And he sort of called the Yankees on his own and, and they brought him in and he ended up going from Columbus to New York and sort of same way you did. You sent the Yankees a DVD of you working out and it, and it worked out and they brought you back again. Yes, and Jim Corey, uh, Jim Corey always supported me, always. I mean, um, you know, once I showed them that, you know, I was going to be able to uh, do the things I did when I contributed um, in 98, uh, Joe was like, yeah, man, I'd love to have, you know, bring them in, see what these, you know, see if he, see if he has something in the tank. So um, it worked out great for me, uh, you know, considering uh, being away from the game, all of all three, uh, I needed someone like Joe in my corner if I was going to get a realistic shot to get back to the big leagues. Well, since you've retired, you've come back to, to old timers day, uh, you know, both at the old stadium and at the new one, you know, what's it like to, you know, cause at the time you're playing and you, I feel like, you, you know, anyone in life, they never think that's going to be them someday. They're going to be the old guy, but there you are at old timers day. And, uh, you're one of the younger guys there and it looks like you could still play. So when you're playing, do you ever get that itch to, to maybe get back out there? Well, you know, when I first started going to old time today, that was a tryout for me. I was trying to get some exposure, you know. <laughs> I was just, I was just <laughs> no, I, I embraced old time today. The earlier the better for me because um you know, I didn't want to be you know, too far removed from uh being in front of the fans. So I I enjoy it. I enjoy being around the older players, uh, you know, hearing their stories and so I, uh, I I like it. I really do. I look forward to it every year. And, you you know, for you, I mean, to be out of the game for a little while and you were going to old-timers day when guys who were, you know, you had played with were still playing, was that a weird dynamic to go back to the stadium and see them still doing it every day? Because, like you said, to do this day in and day out and play 162 games and do it for so many years, I mean, uh, you know, what's it like to see guys who continually do that? Yeah, it, it was weird. It really was <laughs> Uh, it, you know, I didn't know that was going to be a problem until I saw them. I was like, hey, what are you guys doing? It's like, yeah, we're working. What you doing? You know, so, yeah, it, it was crazy how um, that, that, I did have that moment where it was kind of like, man, I still be out here playing. What am I doing out here? So, uh, that's funny, funny you brought that up. Well, since you, uh, since you left the game, you've uh, served as a hitting coach, and now you have the book. Um, hitting low in the zone, a new baseball paradigm where you sort of break down and talk about the mechanics and, and, and technical aspect of hitting. Um, and, you know, is this, you know, the stuff in the book, is it stuff that you were taught, you know, throughout your baseball career and that you picked up, you know, as your time in professional baseball in the majors, or is it things that you figured out, you know, after and, and things you wish you knew while you were playing? You know, it was things I wish I knew while I was playing. It all started with uh, sabermetrics. So uh, after my career, I got into finance. And then when I started studying the data, all the elite hitters were having success in the same areas, which is definitely not um, – we're having the most, most of their success in certain areas. And um, it was all down outside the strike zone, which makes sense when you think about it because everybody tries to keep the ball down, curveball, slide, change up, they all land down. So then I took the mechanics studied the video of like the Mike Trouts of the world and Andrew McCutcheon and Jeter at that time. And then I started reading 
the physics of baseball, uh, physicist named Robert Adair, and all three of them matched up. It was the most amazing thing. And the, the, the cool thing about it is most hitters get the same, close to the same percentages of pitches in this one particular area. And the one who entertains it the most and has the most success uh, usually have uh, elite numbers. Well, for you, I, I know you just brought up, you know, the sabermetric aspect, and I was going to ask you: Are are you a sabermetric guy, or are you just one now, or were you one, you know, one during your career as well? I know it wasn't as prevalent, you know, when you first came up, but towards the end of your career, it certainly started to grow. You know what? I was not until a, a few years ago. Uh, that seemed to be what baseball was heading, and I have a fourteen-year-old son, so I was trying to find an edge for him. For, uh, for him, and um, you know, once I got into you know, understanding, like, what were the qualities of most hitters? Like, everybody knows that Mike Trout is, like, a prolific low-ball hitter. Well, I'm like, well, what does that mean? So when I started studying his data, he gets 130 hits on average from the knees down to the ground out of 190, 185 to 190 hits a year. And that is amazing because that's usually the pitch most people take. Yeah, and I feel like, you know, you brought up Jeter as well, and he was always the guy who, you know, on the knees on the outside corner so he could push it to right field, but he always chased the high fastball. That was, that's always, that was always his kryptonite, and he would go after it, you know, seemingly every single time, and I never understood why because, you know, there, while there are guys like, you know, maybe A-Rod who, you know, back in his prime could catch up to it and turn around, Jeter just never could, and it was always, you know, I never understood why from the waist down that wasn't the only pitchers he swung at. You know, it's crazy because knowing what I know now, it's due to mechanics. So what happens is if, if you're down at a certain point in the process, and it's, it's in the book, um, you're able to entertain the pitches down because you only get truly 150 milliseconds to swing. You get 450 from release of the pitch to about the time the ball goes over the plate. So, in 150 milliseconds, if you're if you're down with the pitch, you can't hit the high pitch. If you're upright, you can hit the high pitch, but you can't hit the low pitch. You just not enough time to react. So, when I study the data of 250 hitters, most of them are upright. They're too tall, so they can't get down to the vault where the largest volume of pitches settle, and that eventually affects their production throughout the course of the year. And I know now you're the director of youth programs for the Texas Rangers, and uh, I'm guessing you sort of implement the stuff that you've written and, and the stuff in the book with with kids and, you know, with growing baseball players so that they can use it for their entire careers. Yeah, you know, I, uh, when I, I've already proven that, the, that the, the model works because of when I coached in the minor leagues. Uh, in one year, the success we had, we truly dominated any performance with, with that ball club, you know, within like the past decade. Um, so the, the, the production is there. And, and here's, here's what's cool about it. Nobody's looking to throw the ball over the plate. And if we know the fastball is too high, well, from over the middle of the plate north, it's going to be extremely difficult to get a very high volume of success. And more importantly, the fastball is the only pitch that can consistently stay above the knee. So if you learn how to entertain those pitches, then you can get your numbers to uh, very high volumes of production. Well, for you to, to be with the Rangers, you know, that, that brought up another question is, you know, you're from Illinois, you're drafted by the Padres with the Yankees, the Blue Jays, the Marlins. How do you end up with Texas? Well, I live here. I, I've been in uh, Texas almost uh, 
16 years. Oh, wow. So you've been there pretty much since, you know, even before you retired. Right. Matter of fact, uh, the World Series check I got, I bought a home here. <laughs> <laughs> Not a bad idea. <laughs> yeah, so uh, it was pretty much weather and location. Like I said, born and raised in Illinois. I married my high school sweetheart, so my parents and her parents were in, up in Illinois. So they can drive to us, we can drive to them, and... You know, I always wanted to live somewhere where it was warm, and Florida and California is just too far away. <laughs> no, I hear that, especially <laughs> in the middle of February here when the, you know, negative 24 a couple of weeks ago and the wind chills uh, still brutal. But, you know, with this book, you, know, you talk about how, how you sort of analyzed data for, for three years. Is that how long it took you to finally, you know, you know, write it from start to finish and finalize it and get it published? Yeah, about two and a half years, yeah. And what's the process for you? I know you, you said you went back, you watched Major League Hitters. What sort of got you started, you know, wanting to write this book and, and wanting to, you know, go in depth with what makes the best hitters tick? Because I can prove it every year. So the data reproduces itself every year. And that's the cool thing about sabermetrics is that, like, Mike Trout averages that production because he has consistent mechanics. So I can prove it every year like i can pull up uh i can there's a website called brooksbaseball.net you can go on there and see all the players called zone profiles and it, it's truly amazing how a 250 hitter and you know bill james talked about this a lot a 250 hitter is going to be a 250 hitter with maybe um one year where they have maybe i have a little uptick or they may do a little worse but pretty much consistently across the career, they're going to be about 250, 260. And that's, if you look, you know, I know it's a lot of data to get into, but, you know, I I went through most major league players and teams and studied their um, performances and stats, and it is on point. Like, Like, I hit 300 almost every year, except when I was hurt. It was one of those deals where, what was I getting at production? I was getting production in the exact same place. Uh, it, it's crazy how sabermetrics took baseball by storm because, you know, we're just creatures of habit and we usually have, you know, pretty consistent mechanics of hitters and uh, pitchers. All right. The book's Hitting Low in the Zone, a new baseball paradigm by Homer Bush. You can check it out at hittinglowinthezone.com. Homer, I appreciate you taking the time to come on and talk about, uh, you know, your career, the Yankees days and, uh, you know, your, your approach to hitting in the new book. And, uh, you know, good luck with the book. Good luck with uh, your position there with the Texas Rangers. And thanks again for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate the time.